0: just want to announce that Steve did not make a mistake. I asked him to read from the beginning. So we're only going to do from uh, the second part, but that, that was me, that wasn't Steve. That's what I'm trying to say. So we're going to invite our children to Children's Church, if you want to head to the back there. Um, and uh, it's just an age-appropriate setting for them to, to learn the scriptures uh, for themselves. So as they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, you are our God. Um, and we have no other. We, we, we desire no other. Thank you for being our God, for being, as we sang, so, so good. Uh, Lord, you make it easy to follow you in ways um, because of your goodness, because of your surpassing love, because you have pursued us, and because you have won us. Lord, would you seal our hearts. And now, Lord, as we turn to uh, the second table of the uh, Ten Commandments, and we hear about how to live together, uh, Lord, I pray that uh, your word would have its effect in us, and uh, Lord, don't let me get in the way of what you have to say this morning. I pray that I would be uh, a faithful conduit and not, uh, not a, a part of the problem. So speak to us from your word, we ask this morning, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. So last week, we started with the first, what's called the first tablet of the uh, Ten Commandments. It's the first four commands primarily pertain to God. And the second part, which is where we're at now, primarily pertain to how we relate to each other. So the, the, what we're kind of seeing God do here is he has identified his people. He said to them, um, I am your God. I am the one who led you out of Egypt. I am, and therefore you are. So the first thing that identifies these people as his is God has called them. He has called them to be uh, his people, and he'll be their God. And so that first tablet kind of establishes the relationship. As a matter of fact, the whole thing is given in masculine singular uh, pronouns. He's not speaking to the nation. He is speaking to each and every person who's standing in front of him individually. This is how this is going to work. It's a relationship between me and you. The other thing that's most noteworthy at this point in, in Exodus, Moses at this point is not the mediator. He is standing there at the foot of the mountain with the rest of Israel and God is speaking to Moses too. And so kind of by extension, that's where we are, is we're standing there. We're not listening to Moses say this, we're standing there at the foot of the mountain and God is addressing you individually, singular pronouns, um, not the collective. So that's what makes us God's people. And, and, and the defining feature, the defining aspect of us being a people is that we have the same God. He is our God. So that's what the first tablet was about, was how do we interact with God? How is our relationship with God established? And now the second tablet, he talks about, okay, so now you have been identified as a people. How do you relate to each other? What will your interactions together look like? How will you live? And so that's what the rest of the, the, um, the commandments go. So the first one is, honor your mother and father that you may be or that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your mother and father. His first address to the people as a collective nation is to address the issue of family. Because when it comes down to it, family is the bedrock of any society. It it, it is just the foundation. It's where it begins. It's how we learn to live together. We start by living with each other in family. So if you're married or single... Um, you, I, I'm, I'm 100% positive, you have a mother and father, yes? So this isn't about just being married, this is about being a family, and so that, that's where we go. When you look at these things, it's not like God is, is calling these commands in from left field, has nothing to do with reality, it's just what he decided that afternoon would be the, the rules. What he's actually telling them is, since he is the creator of everything... He's, he's the one who's created it all. He's saying, this is how it will work in the world that I've created. So when he mentions the fact that family is the, the foundation, that first step in the society, that's reality, that's not made up. This week I heard an interview with a, a, um, Dr. Patty Chamberlain of the Oregon Social Learning Center. And uh, what she did is she founded this thing called Treatment Foster Care Oregon. And her focus is on at-risk youth youth who are getting into trouble. And her approach was evidence-based. She wanted to go through and and look at the evidence instead of what's the, you know, the best idea, what works, what is the, how how are things working, that kind of stuff, evidence-based. And so when she looked at at at-risk youth, kids who have gotten in trouble, what we used to call juvenile delinquents, what she found was kids get in trouble in pairs. They don't do it solo. They, you get a bunch of bad kids together and they do bad things together. And so she said, well, what do we do with these kids who are in trouble, these kids who are committing crimes? What is the current method that we deal with them? We put them in a group home with a bunch of other kids who are getting in trouble. So guess what happens? They get in trouble. So she said, well, what if we do this evidence-based, let's look at the facts, what would work better? And so her her approach was she recruited foster families who were very dedicated to this evidence-based parenting, ways to raise children, and she would take an at-risk youth and place it, the person singularly into a family. And while she would, while this, this youth who had been in trouble was in this family, they were being socialized by this family. They also took the, the skills that they'd given the foster families to raise these kids and taught them to the biological parents of the children. And so, isn't it interesting, she is, she, her interview was more about evidence-based and, you know, how do we use scientific method to do this. But, when she said what she did, I just stopped. I went, you put them in a family. You didn't put them in an institution. You put them in the best place possible that you could possibly place them. You put them into a family situation. And then you didn't just leave them there. You're also working on their family when they get out of that foster care to go back to a family. That's the thing. And what was the results of this? Her her evidence-based uh, foster care-based thing, the kids do a whole lot better. Statistically, there are fewer arrests, less drug use, less time in institutions, and it costs the state of Oregon less money to do that. So this is what I'm talking about, this idea that family is foundational. It, it's not just you know this la-la idea, this is based in reality. These children will do better in a family than they would do in an institution. Family is foundational. It is the bedrock on which society is based. Um, it, it is that important. It's where we learn to socialize. Instead of taking these kids and putting them in a group home where they learn to socialize poorly, we, we go into a family and we learn to socialize properly. It, it's just the foundation. It's just the most important thing. So the, the uh, fifth commandment, the first one that has to do with the second table of the law, is family because God is establishing this uh, this new group of people this nation of Israel he's going to define his people and he has to start right at the basics right at the bottom but notice what this this command says and what it doesn't says doesn't, doesn't says <laughs> what it doesn't say it's it doesn't say children uh, or parents you better raise your children correctly parents it's it's all on you and if you don't do this right you're in big trouble instead he says honor your mother and father he, he does it the other way around. He's looking backwards. He's saying, you children, listen to and honor and obey your parents. Now, why would he do it that way instead of the other way? Well, if, the, if everything goes correctly here, if everything works just right, he's given the nation the Ten Commandments. He's about to give them the law. And if they get it, if it connects with them, then you have a generation who is going to be faithful to the Lord and walk in his ways. So when they have children, the children are looking back and they're not having the, the ways forced on them. They're told, honor your parents. Look back at what your parents are doing well, what they're doing right, and emulate that. That's how you honor your parents. So the impetus is not on parents, you better make sure your children are perfect. It is children, listen to your parents. They know what they're talking about. So why, would they, why should I listen to my parents, right? 1950s, 1960s, didn't we decide youth is everything and parents don't know nothing? Well, and in, in especially if you go back to this time period, these folks have existed on the planet longer than you have. They have managed to survive in a really hostile environment for a whole lot longer than you have, so maybe you should shut up and listen to them because you would like to survive in that environment as well. So I mean, just at, at a basic level, they're survivors and you're just getting started, so learn from their mistakes. Also, learn from their mistakes, <laughs> uh, kids. Your parents have made mistakes that you are only beginning to contemplate. They have suffered through the consequences of it and they know what the results are. So honor your mother and your father, honor them. They they have made the mistakes. They have gone through this. They have some wisdom that you can learn from. The other thing to notice is he says, honor your parents. No, he says, honor your father and your mother both of these people are equal. Both of them have valid input. So he doesn't lump them together. He doesn't just say, honor your father. It is honor your father and your mother. Both of these people were involved in your creation. Both of these people have vested interest in your growth. And so you should pay attention and you should honor them. You should, you should listen to what they have to say. So why does God say you should honor your parents? Is it because, you know, then, then life will go better for you and you'll get the stuff you want? Listen to what he says. This is, this is part of that forming of a nation. He goes on to say that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So where is Israel right now? They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. They have just left the house of slavery, Egypt. Where are they going? They're going to the promised land. They're going to the land that God had promised to Abraham I am going to give you this land as an inheritance forever. This is where you will take root. This is where you will grow. So his promise is, if you honor your parents, when you get to the land that I have given you, you'll stay there. Your days will be long. He's not saying you'll live longer if you listen to your parents. There are plenty of very obedient children who who die early, unfortunately. But what he is saying is, Israel, look, if you guys, when you get to the promised land, If you want to stay in the promised land, you've got to listen to your parents. Parents, you've got to be following what I'm telling you now, and you've got to pass that on. That's that's the point. Do you remember in the Passover, Exodus 12 and 13, when Moses is giving the detailed instructions, this is what you do on Passover, a very important part of it is when your children ask you, why do we do this? You explain to them this way. There is this heritage to be passed on. And so what's supposed to be happening is they're supposed to be going into the promised land, living faithfully to Yahweh, and then they will be long on the land. Um, that didn't work, did it? They eventually went into exile. And, and what had happened? Well, one of the things that happened, here's, this is from uh, 2 Kings chapter 8. Listen, listen to what's going on. In the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, began to reign. So a bunch of names there. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. That's the southern tribes. Jehoshaphat was overall a pretty good king. He was pretty faithful. And at a certain point, his son Jehoram took over for him. Jehoshaphat left the throne and um, Jehoram took took it up. He stepped up. He was 32 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the ways of Israel, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not honor his father. He did not honor his mother. His father had established a kingdom, and he was leading in a a mostly good way. And instead of honoring his father, he looks to the king of the north and says, No, I'm going to do that and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He's not the only one. It keeps going. Uh, Second Kings 16, Ahaz was evil. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. His father was Jotham who did well. Uh, Kings, second Kings 21, Manasseh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but Hezekiah was his father and he did well. Jehoahaz did evil in the sight of the Lord. His father was Joash, or, or Josiah rather, one of the best kings. And what's the end of the Kings and Chronicles story? Where does it go? They go into exile. They did not live long in the land that they had been given. So this idea of honoring your parents, honoring your mother and father, in that society that's divined by who God is, it's important that, number one, the children listen to their parents, but also that parents are instructing their children. It's a two-way street. And that's how the society will form. That's how the society will remain rooted and, and grounded in that promise of I will be your God, you will have no other gods before me. Is that was the, the impetus was supposed to be on the parents. So how do you honor your parents? H- how do you do that? Well, the word for honor is chaved, which is heavy. It's the word we get, the, uh, the Hebrew word where we get glory. So it's not saying glory your parents. <laughs> because it's, ver- it's a noun version of it. What it's saying uh, is, is to look to your parents and to see them as honorable and worthy and venerable. Now, what happens if you have a parent who's not good? Because the kings kind of went back and forth, didn't they? So would you honor your parents? Would you honor your mother and father by doing their evil? Well, that would not glorify them. That wouldn't glory them. That would be the opposite of it. So the idea then would be to do what your parents do that's right and where you disagree with them, disagree with them with care and with love and hope that they will come to do what's right. That's how you honor them is you want them to come into the best that they could have. Uh, So that's the idea is, is you don't ignore the first tablet of the law if your parents are and say, well, I'm honoring my parents. I'm keeping the second half. Well, James said, if you break one, you break them all. So, so do you see the tension there is, is I have this, maybe I have a parent who's, who's not walking with the Lord. How do I honor them? Um, well, you don't honor them by saying, I'm never going to talk to you until you come to Jesus. You, you, you love them, you respect them, you pray for them, you walk before them in an honorable fashion. So you show respect to them um, uh, who is wrong or when they're wrong. The way the New Testament picks this up, it picks up the same basic idea Although we're not promised a chunk of real estate, we're promised the entire stinking world. That's the promise that we get to inherit. Uh, Israel got this little plot of land in the Middle East. We get it all. So when the New Testament looks at this, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's more of a quotation of Deuteronomy than it is Exodus, on um, the Ten Commandments. But the, the idea is the same. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, This is the first commandment with a promise. Did you notice that? The other commandments are, I am the Lord your God. Don't make any um, uh, graven images. Don't take my name in vain. Obey the Sabbath, or observe the Sabbath. This is the first one that says, honor your mother and father, because then you'll get this. There's a promise attached. He says, honor your mother and father. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger and bring them up, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, Paul immediately went both directions. Parents or children, you honor your parents. Parents, don't exasperate your children, but bring them up in the admonition of the Lord. That's what the new covenant looks like, and that is the foundation not only of the nation of Israel, but it's our foundation as well. So that, that's, that's our command. So the next commandment is you shall not murder. Pretty straightforward, um, the next command after that. So what does it mean you shall not murder? Well, if you look at it just as it stands, actually in Hebrew it's two words, no murder. Um, it couldn't be simpler, couldn't be more direct. Uh, But what we could do is we could say, well, I have never actually plunged a knife into anybody's heart, therefore, I've kept this commandment. Is that fair? Has anybody here guilty of murder? Anybody ever stabbed or killed anybody? One of the things is, it says you shall not murder. Now, the King James translated it as you shall not kill. And one of the commentators pointed out there's a significant difference between the two. You shall not kill means there is no grounds ever to, ex- to kill anybody. But that's not biblical. Because you remember the, the, um, the covenant God made with Noah. He said, um, if anybody takes man's or sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. So the, the, the context of Noah's flood was the earth had gotten so bad. People had gotten so rotten that God wiped them all out except for eight people in an ark and a bunch of animals but the people had gotten so rotten, violence had gotten so bad. And so after that's over, his command, his only command to them is, if anybody kills anybody, they die. So if we say that this is saying you shall not kill, then God's at odds with himself. There is a category of times when people are right to execute somebody else. It it sounds counterproductive. I've listened to the arguments against capital punishment He says, so you're telling somebody don't kill, and the way you show them don't to kill is you kill them. Yeah, yeah, that's what happens. And what we forget about in that whole conversation is why did God say, you shall not murder? If anybody kills, their blood will be shed by man. Why? Because in God's image, he created them. So we're back now to the first tablet of the law. God said, you will not make any any image of me out of anything on the earth, but God says, because you are the image that I created. So it's not, well, we can't kill anybody because that wouldn't be nice. It is, we can't kill anybody because God has designated them as his image bearers, and we are not to tamper with that. We are not to mess with that. So even in the context of this, God said, all right, Moses, what I want you to do is put a a perimeter around the mountain, and if anybody crosses that perimeter, stone them or shoot them through with arrows, kill them, even if it's an animal. So there is a case where capital punishment is warranted. And God's not being a hypocrite by saying, if anybody crosses the line, kill him, or being a hypocrite by saying, now I want you to go into the land of Canaan and kill everybody. And and one of the answers people have is, well, he's God, he can do that. Well, that's true. I don't think it's a complete answer. Why does God do that? Why, God does, remember what I said a couple weeks ago, God does stuff on purpose. Why would he say, go into the land and execute these people? He has a reason. In his reason, he told Abraham in his covenant. He said, the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. The sin of the Amorites was really bad, but it wasn't filled up to the full measure where God said, I will tolerate no more and they must be punished. So the idea of not killing is within the parameters of there are times when execution is correct, when it's warranted. And it's not just God being a big bully and deciding to do that. This also brings up the question of Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, there's a couple of things that, that go on with the Sermon on the Mount that I think I need to unpack a little. First of all, um, God or Jesus does quote this law and he says, you have heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you. And so some people, when they approach the Sermon on the Mount, they say, what's going on here is God, Jesus is saying, that's the end of the old covenant law and I am now establishing my law. And I don't think that's a good way to handle that. I don't think that really answers what's going on, because what did Jesus say? He said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. When t- Satan, in the same book, in Matthew, a couple chapters earlier, when Satan came to tempt him, Satan said, do this. And Jesus didn't say, you have, ri- you have heard it said. He said, it is written, when he's quoting scripture. So then what's going on in Matthew chapter five? Well, Jesus, early on in Matthew chapter five, says, don't think I came to abolish the law. I didn't come to abolish, I came to fulfill it. And then after a little bit he says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees to get into the kingdom of heaven. So what he's saying is, don't think I'm coming here and I'm eradicating law and saying it's all gone. What I'm saying is your righteousness, the the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes is this much and it's not enough. So you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. If you look at your brother and you say, Raka, you fool, you're guilty of murder. What he's saying is the Pharisees didn't take it far enough. They had began to fence in the law and make it manageable. And Jesus says, no, you you don't understand. You have to understand what I mean. When it says here, you shall not murder, it means you will not take from someone else what is rightfully theirs, their life, their their dignity. So if you hate somebody, you're guilty of murder. That's how he ramps it up. He, he takes it to this really impossible level for them. Don't think I came to abolish the law. That's, that's not what he's doing. He's showing what it should be. Oh, by the way, the, the news gets worse as we go, so just hang on for a minute. So you shall not murder. The next one he says is you shall not commit adultery. So if we're talking about the, the foundation of the society and it starts with the family, well, there's a degree that we have to trust each other, and so you can't go around murdering people, taking life just because you want to. And also, you shall not commit adultery. If, if you commit adultery, you're beginning to shatter that family. You're beginning to tear that apart. Adultery is an extremely serious matter. It, it's really important. It's so important it's so foundational that later on in the prophets, God will use adultery to say, this is what my people are doing as they're chasing other gods. As they violated the first commandment, they are now doing this. They are adulterers. They're prostitutes. They go out and spread themselves around. As a matter of fact, not only are they prostitutes, they're horrible prostitutes because they pay their suitors. And a prostitute's supposed to get paid by the, the people that come to them. So they're just terrible. That's the picture of adultery. It tears apart a society. It ruins the society. It breaks it up. So we can't can't have the society where we're following God if we're engaged in adultery. It's so bad, if we go back to Matthew 5, what Jesus does is he ties that lust, that looking to another woman, you shall not commit adultery. He says, if you look at a woman, you're guilty of it. And he says, it is so bad, it is so destructive, that you should mutilate yourself if you can't control it. And the reason is, he says, because it's better to go to heaven missing an arm than to go to hell with a full body. So that's one of the ones where he is most clear this will condemn you to hell. That's adultery. That's how he interprets and applies adultery for us because adultery tears that society apart. The next one is you shall not steal. So this is kind of... Social media makes this hard. We have the ring you know the the doorbell ring doorbell, and part of that is is they have a community where people can post things that you know their ring doorbell caught um, about ninety percent is uh, somebody 's dog came by but there's also you see people doing just some brazenly like, especially around the holidays, they run up and they grab a box off the the porch and run or they walk up and pull the mail out and go through it and it 's it, it really makes it seem like, wow, this is really horrible. Our nation must be falling apart. Um, it's just captured on video now is what's going on. We, we can share it on social media. We have to have some degree of trust within a society that we're not going to steal from each other. If we plan to keep the society together, if we plan to survive, there has to be some, at least some degree of trust. Now, it varies, and as you get more people compacted into smaller spaces, that gets harder to do. Um, but the idea of stealing would be, I didn't earn it, but I'm gonna take it. And so this is how Paul applies this don't steal. He says in Ephesians 4, let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So if you're a thief, stop it, get a job. That, that's what he's saying. Why, why would he say that? Why, why should I do that? Is it just makes me feel better about myself? He says, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The exact opposite. You're stealing, you're taking from people, and now he says, stop stealing, get a job, and give away. Give to people in need. That's the basis, that's the, the, the application of do not steal is, you don't steal because you should be sharing. You should be sharing with other people. The next commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So this one is a little tricky because of the way it's phrased. To bear false witness carries a sense of a legal arrangement. You shall not go into court and lie in the court case about your neighbor. That's what it means to bear false witness. Uh, Did you see this person steal that box off that person's porch? Oh, yes, I did, knowing that you didn't. That would be bearing false witness. So at its basic level, it's be honest in court. But that's not quite enough either, is it? It, we, we need to have that society where we can trust each other to not steal, but also to not lie about me. So to lie is to tear somebody else's um, honor, their integrity, who they are, tear that down. And, and for what reason? Well, who knows? It could be any horrible reason. Now, as bad as that all was, it gets worse. The last commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover your neighbor's, covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbors. You shall not covet. And covet means exactly that, wrongly desire something that isn't yours. And so when I was reading some of the commentators, the Jewish commentators really struggled with this. This was really a problem. How can God legislate desires? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to turn that off? It's just a, a, a desire that wells up in me, and I, I want something. How am I supposed to go click? Nope, not going to do that. I, I'm not a robot. I can't do that. So, the way they kind of resolve it is, is they said, well, what you should do is, is confine your desires to what is actually attainable by you, and, and not be after, you know, like a pauper looking at the princess and going, man, I'd really like her. There's no way in the universe you're going to get a princess, so don't do that. Is that what he said? Confine your desires to only what's reasonable? That's manageable. You could probably accomplish that. No, the problem here is you can't control that. If, if you say, well, what I'm going to do is I have this thing that I desire and I dwell on it. I, just, I have pictures on all over my house and I look at it and I think about it and I just, oh, it's so wonderful and I can't wait to have it and I can't have it and I really desire it. That makes the coveting worse, doesn't it? What if you say, well, I'm gonna cut it entirely out of my life and I'll never see it? Does that make the coveting any better? Now the desire is not being fulfilled even superficially and it can actually make the coveting worse. So heaven help me, how do I get out of this? What do I do? How do I control my desires? Well, this is a problem. This is a real problem command. And as a matter of fact, this is the one that Jesus used to get his point across that you can't do it. So in Luke 18, a a young ruler comes to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, honor your mother and father. Gives him most of the second tablet, doesn't he? And the young man, It doesn't say it, but I just picture him with a kind of a goofy grin on his face going, all these I have kept from my youth. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I'm expecting a positive answer that I've already gotten there. And so then Jesus looks at him, and he heard him say that, and he says, one thing you lack. There's one piece you haven't connected with yet. One thing you lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Where did Jesus take him? He took him through four out of the five, or uh, five out of the six last commandments, takes him to the last commandment, and says, Now, you desire and you've accumulated a lot, give that away. Stop coveting. And the man goes away sad because he had a lot of stuff. He couldn't let go, he couldn't control his coveting. But notice what Jesus said and what he didn't say. He said, One thing you lack, sell everything and give it away, and then you'll be in heaven. It didn't end there, did it? And then come follow me. So Jesus is not saying stop coveting and and start doing right. What he says is remove the the issues that are causing you to covet and then come follow me and we'll work on this. We'll deal with this. But you need to come follow me. So that was the promise. That was the thing is that if you want to stop coveting, the, the human heart is built to desire. We just desire things right? that's it, not a bad thing. It can be a bad thing, but that's just how we're built. So there's a famous sermon, the expulsive power of a new desire or a new uh, passion. So in other words, what he's saying is you can't take this thing that you shouldn't covet and set it off to the side and go, I'm free. You have to replace that hole with something else. You have to have some desire to kick that other desire out. And what was Jesus' answer? Come follow me. I will replace your desire with something even greater. I will give you something even better. So how are you doing on the commandments? Anybody murder? Nope, no adulterers? Okay, so far so good. How's the coveting going? And everybody should be looking at their shoes right now because I really want to. You just can't help it. We need to have a new desire in our heart to do that. So there, there is where it leads. And so listen to how Paul explains it in Romans 7. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law, that the law is sin? By no means. So don't get the idea that the law is bad. The law is sin. The, the law is not sin. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law said you shall not covet. So what Paul is saying is, here I am going along coveting and it feels good. Hey, that's pretty cool. You know, that's, that's a nice looking thing that I really, really want. And, and it feels right and good, and, and shouldn't I want a good thing? And then all of a sudden the law comes to him and says, oh, by the way, don't covet. And he goes, well, now what am I supposed to do? <laughs> now I know it's wrong to covet, and I covet even more. It's not because there was something wrong with the law, it's something wrong with the human heart. So that last one, that last commandment is the one that trips us up every time. So what are we supposed to do about our heart? We can't just flip a switch and and make it love what's good and right and and perfect. So here's how Moses explains it. And this is really the point of the Ten Commandments. When the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off. So remember the context of this. This is not um, 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 a speaker at McDonald's saying, you shall not covet. This is a mountain standing in front of him, shaking, trembling. This this is a mountain who's wrapped in smoke. Uh, Coming off the top of it is this like kiln-like plume of uh, fire and smoke going up because God has come down on this mountain. This mountain is, is racked with thunder and lightning. It's loud. It's noisy. There's a ram's horn sounding. And then this booming, majestic voice says, I am the Lord your God. That's the context this is in. And so Moses at the end here takes us back to that at the beginning and he reminds us, this is what it's like to stand at the foot of the mountain. And the people are terrified. They were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. So God, remember you said put a boundary up here where people can't cross? No danger of that. They're they're two miles back now. They're terrified. So Moses, they, they go to Moses and they say, Look, we can't take this anymore. You speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak or we're gonna die. So this voice that is booming out must have been terrifying, loud, overcoming all that other noise, booming out to them, these commandments, and it terrified them. So what the people recognize, what they know immediately is, we can't stand here, we need a mediator. We need somebody to stand between us and God because he's terrifying. What what, uh, Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher from the the, um, late 19th century, said is he said the the smoke and the, the thunder and the lightning and all that was a picture, it was a promise of coming judgment. It was a showing forth of God's holiness. And so the people standing there are hearing God's demands and they're going, we can't meet that. We need somebody to stand between us. Moses, would you stand between us? You go listen to him and and tell us what he says, and we'll just listen to you. But we can't take this anymore. They were terrified. And so listen to what Moses says. He says, do not fear. Every time an angel shows up, one of the first things they say is, do not fear. And it's not because they're not fearing already. It's because it's a terrifying sight. So Moses is now beginning to act as mediator he's now sliding into that mediatory role, and he says, do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Do not fear. Fear the Lord. So is that contradictory? Is he saying, don't be afraid, but be afraid? What he's saying is, fear the correct thing. The sound the, the, the epiphany, the, the way that God chose to manifest himself. If you remember when I, when I talked about the last part of chapter 19, I said God can appear in any form he wants. And, and so why did he choose this form? If you remember, I said that when, when he appeared to Abraham, when he was going to go judge Sodom and Gomorrah, he appeared as a traveler. So that Abraham would invite him in and sit down and, and engage him in intercessory prayer. When... when um, when he appeared to Elijah, he appeared as a still, small voice. So he's not constrained to appear in some way. Why did he appear this way? And at the time, I don't know if you remember, I said, he appeared that way to scare people. He wanted to frighten them. His glory, his majesty, his place, his, his presence was so strong, it was terrifying. And that's why I said that, is because Moses says, don't fear. Don't be afraid of the, the, the epiphany. Instead, fear God. Don't don't be afraid of the voice that's speaking to you, as terrifying as that is. Fear the one who's speaking. Because it's possible to be afraid of the Ten Commandments. It's possible to get to the the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet, realize what a hard time you have with your heart, and go, I'm just sunk, I'm undone. You're fearing the wrong thing at that point. What you need to fear is the God who said it the God who demands that of you, that's who you need to fear. And so what happens here is we, like Israel, if we're fearing God, and and, sometimes when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we say, well, it's awesome respect. It is, but it's also, this is awesome respect because this is the judge. So like Israel, what we should do at this point is say, Lord, we need a mediator. We are not worthy to stand in your presence to hear you. We know what you demand and we don't measure up. And so what God has done in the midst of that is he says, I will send a mediator. I will give you one who will stand between me and you. He will be the one who has never coveted, who's never hated his brother unjustly. He'll be the one who has never had any other God, has never even had a temptation to have another God, has never even had a desire. Any other God, when he looked at, he would go, this is foolish, why would I want that? He will be the one who will stand between you and I. And that's why when you get to Hebrews, Hebrews says, look, Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus is the son. Even Moses is serving Jesus. Even even Moses has got the mediator of Jesus Christ in his place. So when we come to the end of the Ten Commandments and we look it over and we go, I am undone, hail and amen, you are undone. There is none righteous, no, not one. See, I'm already preaching Romans. But we have a mediator, the man, Jesus Christ, who stands between God and us. That was what they needed, that was what we needed. That was the appropriate response for them and that is the appropriate response for us. So Moses says, do not fear, for God has come to test you. God had come to test them a couple of other times. He tested them at at, um, Mara, the bitter waters. He tested them when he gave them the manna because he said it's not gonna be on the seventh day, he's testing you to see if you'll trust him on the seventh day. So this testing is not God finding out, are they good enough? The, The testing is God showing them, where is your heart at, what's going on? So even here, he comes to test them so that they may fear him with the end result that you may not sin. Don't fear the commands, don't fear the mountain, fear the God who's given you the commands and that will lead you away from sin. So the people stood far off. They were, they were way far away from that boundary marker. They stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. We always think of the mountain being bright lights. It was thick darkness. Why was it thick darkness? So that they couldn't see God's glory. So they couldn't behold that. They could see the manifestation of it, the swirling clouds around it. But God dwells sometimes in darkness Now, in the New Testament, I know John says, for in him there is no darkness. He's using it in a different way. Be careful to not assume that there are biblical codes where words are used the same way throughout the entire Bible. They're used in different ways at different times. Context is king. What does it say? So this is saying that God is in darkness to hide himself from the people, but he's not completely cut off, is he? Moses goes up and penetrates the darkness and stands before this God. And now what will come next, what will come in the rest of this, even the end of chapter 20, will be the law. And so what we'll do next week is we'll begin to sum up that idea of how does the Christian relate to the law? What do we do with the law? We'll, we won't go through all the laws that are there, but we'll talk through how does that relate. And, and that's where we'll be next. So the Ten Commandments, as I said, are almost law. They're kind of like law, but they seem to be distinct, stand off as separate from the rest of the law that Moses will give. And so that's what we'll look at next week. We'll pack, pick through the, the law of God and say, what are we supposed to do with that? Do we just ignore it because we're in the new covenant? Are we supposed to keep it? There's, there are Christians who answers all over the place on this. And then, like I promised, we'll go do Romans so that we can understand it from a biblical, biblical perspective. So we'll get it right uh, eventually. <laughs> let's, let's close now in prayer. Lord, thank you for the ten words, for the ten commandments for making it clear, um, making it abundantly clear to us that this is what you define as right and what you define as wrong. And Lord, the, some of this is not new. I'm sure that people knew it was always wrong to murder. I'm sure that people always felt it was wrong to, to uh, lie, to bear false witness. But Lord, you've brought them together and you've put them in a context that says those things are wrong because I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other God before me. And so, Lord, as we approach these things, as we look at these, as we contemplate what's going on um, in, in your commands, and we see deep in our heart our struggle, Lord, I pray that you would increase in us a fear of the Lord so that we might not sin. And, Lord, that fear is allayed in perfect love as Jesus stands as our mediator, as he he eternally exists to mediate between us and you. He is our high priest. Lord, thank you for bringing us to that point. And I pray now that the Ten Commandments would work in our lives the way you intended them to. That we would fear and respect and reverence you. And so then we would say, what do we do to align ourselves with this great and this wonderful God? Ah, here's what he's told us to do. Thank you for the mediator for when we don't do it. And Lord, may we as a community of people identified by you as our God live the way that you've called us to. We ask all of these things in your name, Jesus, our mediator, our priest. Amen.